The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views, information, or opinions expressed by hosts or guests are their own. Neither the show nor any of its content should be construed as investment advice or as a recommendation to buy or sell any particular security. Security-specific information shared on this podcast should not be relied upon as a basis for your own investment decisions. Be sure to do your own research. The podcast hosts and participants may have a position in the securities mentioned personally through sub-accounts and or through separate funds and may change their holdings at any time. Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors, brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Hello, everyone. It's Elliot here doing the intro. John's uh, hosting the Zurich Project right now, a major event, and very excited to hear a report from him about how everything goes. It's Phil and I, and we're joined today by a very special guest, Mike Pong Malai, who's now doing, uh, who's working at WCM as artist in residence. Many of you know him as Non-Gap on Twitter. He got that amazing handle nice and early, and he taught all of us about the dark arts of corporate governance. He's here to join us talking about his background, how he got into uh, this specific niche within investing, crafting really his own kind of target area. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll see where this goes. But I think we have a lot of interesting ground to cover and some timely subjects. So, Mike, welcome to the podcast. Hey, man, it's, it's uh, great to be here. Looking forward to jamming. That's right. That's right. So, you know, maybe start by telling us a little bit about how you found the dark arts and what your aha moment was like. Um, well, I guess uh, before we start, I probably, because I do work for WCM, uh, I do need to share something really quick. Uh, we didn't really plan any specific names to discuss, uh, certainly, but, um, you know, any, any securities or stocks that I guess might be unidentified or discussed here don't represent uh, all the securities that might be purchased, sold, or you know, recommended for client accounts at WCM. So uh, please don't assume that uh, an investment in in any of these names that we may or may not identify um, will be profitable. I mean, is anything really? No guarantees of the future, right? So that was probably the worst. Compliance is going to crack down on my disclaimer here, but. We love it's you. Extra disclaimed with our. <laughs> we're, we're off to a, we're off to a strong start, but it's 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 uh I I'm super excited to be here. Yeah. So yeah, tell us about the dark arts. Like what what led you to it? You know, um, what was your what was the experience in the background that brought you to uh, this space? Ah, uh, the great lonely journey to the dark arts and discovering some you know way of I guess learning about markets and investing. I think you know. My story probably is not much different than most folks as far as you know discovering Buffett and you know Greenblatt and special event driven investing and you know in a past life uh, I, I somehow um, talked my way into doing activist investing at Relational where we did obviously a lot of corporate governance work and board work and you know there's always this perception that I just kind of figured it out and you know everything was neatly connected but I, I like to say that you know my time there and and think about you know, when your job is to read hundreds of proxies, thousands of proxies a year, you know, it's a, anyone who, who spends uh, professionally spends time just reading footnotes knows that's a pretty, uh, 
uh, it's drudgery, I think is a nice way of, of saying, um, what, what you do. And I actually say, you know, much of whatever my discovery here has been, has been more like, uh, Tom Hanks and Castaway, where eventually you start talking to your proxy statements and making elaborate stories to try to remember what you're reading. And lo and behold, some stories turned out to be, you know, kind of predictive in, in some weird way, right? And you start seeing the same script over and over again. So that was kind of the initial genesis of um, finding how governance connects to decision-making, which ultimately then led to, well, if, uh, you know, if, if your job is to um, incentivize management to you know, do the best and, and make as much money, well, what are the incentives to just, you know, make as much money as possible? How, how, what does that look like? How does, you know, how does that all work? And that's, Kind of how we snowballed and, and rabbit holed into dark arts, I guess. Yeah. And, you know, now your role is artist in residence at WCM. And WCM is a unique shop. I kind of imagine you and envision you with, like, you know, your little palette walking around to each of the various corners within the firm and adding a little touch, like a little more of this color there and a little more of, uh, you know, that shape there and enhancing the contours of everything. Talk a little bit about what you're doing. Well, now. yeah. It's, um, you know, this place is pretty irreverent or, you know, the, the culture here has, uh, you know, we tend to have fun. And, you know, for those who don't know WCM, we do kind of, you know, quality long um, investing around the world. And we're based in Laguna Beach. And if you know anything about Laguna Beach, it's kind of this uh, uh, interesting history around artists and folks coming out here and, and kind of just expressing themselves. And, you know, I think, you know, my initial interactions with the firm was really around, stewardship governance and and kind of not less so dark arts and and doing event driven stuff but more kind of framing hey this is how you know these concepts can impact long term you know value creation and compounding and you know the firm is well known for you know their culture research and you know when I was digging into their culture work and combining it with kind of my perspective on things there were some really cool insights uh, that were kind of being bubbled and um i just flippantly said it was like this is art <laughs> you know but more than like kanye sampling uh uh tracks and creating like new stuff and it just kind of stuck and and so that that was the genesis of this concept we're calling the artist studio which is think of it as kind of the r&d wing of the investment team you know our goal is really to try to get our investment process well everyone's goal is to get the investment process uh better but you know that's you know my Primarily, my job is to think about you know the longer duration research projects, and also you know recruiting folks to uh, do uh, residencies here at WCM. So, uh, recruiting. Uh, so please feel free to reach out. Yeah, just the idea of that is really interesting. The idea of doing R and D as an investment shop. So maybe, you know, what what exactly does that mean? What are some of the areas you're exploring? And you know, how do you sprinkle your governance uh, lens into that? Oh man, we could probably do a whole podcast on that topic. We are. You know, when you, I know. I guess we are technically. Um, I mean, think about it. Like, you know, when you when you're in the investment profession, um, everyone talks about investment process, and this is actually going to feed into some some things. I'm, I, it turns out I'm actually quite opinionated about in in retrospect. You know, if you were to kind of lay out like you know the P and L of a asset manager, um, it's just salary and compensation, right? It's not. You know, it's not like a traditional PL. It's not COGS, R&D, sales and marketing. But if you're actually to like kind of divvy up the time most investors spend into those kind of categories, I mean, you could say your investment process is like COGS, right? You're just executing your playbook 
and uh, you know trying to generate return and clients are, are effectively you know paying you for that. Um, the question is, how do you think through kind of, you know, and, and this is not to talk about like style drift or anything, but how do you make sure your process is getting better over time, right? How, how do you actually like um, invest, you know, from a, you know, I call it R&D, you know, R&D perspective to ensure that, you know, how, whatever your process is, 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 is in tip top form. And so you think about most places, um, I, you know, my opinion it's usually a random walk, right? It's usually there's some key, you know, CIO, PM makes the right investment, meets the right leader. They kind of unlock a different perspective on how to think about investing and it gets evangelizing the organization. Uh, that's a very, I don't know about you, but that's a very, you know, that would make me uneasy as a long-term kind of <laughs> LP where your innovation is, is, is looked at that way versus, okay, how can we intentionally, you know, um, Think about investing and not worry necessarily about uh, you know the the day to day demands and, and the market regime shifting and 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 all the other things that come with you know just being a really good portfolio manager and and staying on top of that and so you know the idea was you know let's let's try to figure out a way to be much more intentional have someone focused on on this element of our research process and and the reason why is you know when when I think about corporate governance as a you know area that you can find differentiated investment insight. And I think before I even publicly started sharing some of my perspectives, uh, most people just kind of like glaze over, right? Like no one reads a proxy statement. And if they do, they really don't know how to read a proxy statement. Um, It's not a place that, you know, people think you can actually derive insight in. And it took well, I had no choice but to learn it because of you know my past jobs, right? Where I, I was going to read proxy statements whether I liked it or not. Oftentimes I didn't like it, but I enjoyed it eventually. And and as a result of that, being intentional about it, it's like, oh, gee, like this was an undeveloped, underappreciated area that um, all investors should uh, you know potentially you know invest time and resources in in leveling up. And so you know the question is, can we do that with other areas, categories? Um, you know, perspectives. I don't know. That's why it's kind of an R and D type initiative uh, at WCM. But you know, the the hope is we can you know continue to you know build momentum you know across different areas that we're exploring, whether it's you know our culture research or you know stewardship or um, you know moat trajectory and topology work that WCM you know really spends a lot of time on. Right. So we'll see. But it's a you know it's definitely an area that that. I'm passionate about and and you know it's it's super fun to come into work every day and, and work on this. I find the idea amazing and inspiring. And I think, you know, it speaks to one of the tensions in the industry that a lot of people uh, have a hard time addressing, where you want to have a tried and true process and you have certain core principles, but there's a fine line between like style drift and evolution, but all the great investors have evolved over time. Um, and so you know, I think it's pretty neat that you all are taking this as a deliberate exercise. And so how do you take something from like a seed that's nurtured in your corner and make it deployable? Like, is there a process for that? Is there a methodology there? I think that's where, I mean, when you think about R&D in general at any organization, right? There's, you can generally bucket it into kind of two areas, right? Your maintenance R&D, the things that you just, 
you need to work on, you know, you need to upgrade certain things. You need to spend more time. Maybe, maybe it's just, you know, whatever pipeline or, you know, demands like the PM knows we need to develop that area. So that's kind of maintenance or research. Um, and then the more like kind of growth, you know, innovation R&D is like, we don't know, right? You're, you're testing, you're experimenting, you're hoping that, hey, if something, you know, comes to light, it, it, it leads to, um, you know, an insight that you, you, you can eventually, you know, commercialize. So, I mean, I can give like a real example of something, you know, I'm working on. And, and one area is, so WCM spends a lot of time around company culture and how culture um, can actually be a source of competitive advantage, right, for, for firms. Um, I think everyone kind of knows that or they suspect it, right? Culture matters. But how do you actually think through and build a framework to kind of bubble and tease out the key insights that you can actually deploy real capital to is a much different proposition. So you know, obviously the firm here has a lot of experience in it. And that was one of the reasons why I was gravi- you know, interested in, in learning more about what they're doing and, and working with them. Um, and then from my world, you know, stewardship and governance and, and how boards and can really impact long-term value creation. Well, no one ever, you know, thought and talked about, well, what about boardroom dynamics? What about the culture within the boardroom? How, how does that actually impact long-term value creation? How does, how do, how do the kind of interpersonal relationships of a director and the culture that kind of persists in that boardroom, you know, impacts value? People don't really, I think people understand it, but how do you actually do diligence? That? How do you actually think through that? How do you actually identify not only flags that are areas of concern, but um, you know, areas where it's, you know, a possibility where value is about to be unlocked, right? And and that's something that I didn't think through intentionally. It was just more as you kind of experience investing and, and get enough at-bats, you just see, oh, wow, like, you know, people get really excited when a new CEO comes into town, right? And takes over a company and the stock takes off. But what actually happens when a CEO shows up, right? Like, okay, oftentimes they're kind of a catalyst of change. They're kind of the new keeper of the culture, there's usually some level of board turnover, which then changes the dynamic, um, which also might change what gets prioritized as far as like KPIs and, and things like that, that you're paying them for and, and, and discussing at a board level. And, and all these little like kind of qualitative elements suddenly create this real meaningful, you know, long-term enduring compounding sort of outcome. So, you know, if, if you know, people ask me, what am I working on right now? I'm doing weird stuff probably like, <laughs> you know how how does a director's relationship with each other and and the, the culture of of um of that boardroom impact long term value? Not many people are going to care about that. Although I do think a lot of leaders and founders kind of geek out on that topic, so I can certainly talk about that with most operators, investors. They might be like, "That's interesting," but you know, I don't I don't see the value. Which incidentally is what I've heard for most of my career when it came to corporate governance. It's like, it sounds interesting, but it's not compelling until you literally, you know, I literally had to start a premium newsletter and lay out, here's what I think it's going to happen. It happens, stock moves, and suddenly it's like, you know, genius, but it's, I, I guess we're, we're simple, we're simple animals, right? It's like, you just, you might not agree with someone's process, but the second that process starts making money, suddenly you're a lot more, you know, um, <laughs> you're a lot more open to uh, changing your own process, right? So, so is that is that really all it was? Like people just sort of woke up and and thought, wow, this is an unexploited inefficiency that we can use to make money, and then 
is that how you're doing it day to day? You're kind of looking at this stuff and applying your experience and your read on situations to make, uh, you know, discrete investments, or is it more of a negative art in that you're seeing the the dark arts, as you call them, you know, applied in a nefarious way, and you're using that to kill potential investments that the team might otherwise be considering? I mean, I would say like learning this stuff for me was very organic. It wasn't like trying to create some grand conspiracy theory about what's going on. Oftentimes, it'd be like a probably a conversation with like some like Elliot on some name, some situation, and would be like, hey, this this is happening or this blew up or this is taking off and, you know, I'll flip through like, you know, the form fours or proxy or it's like, Oh, that makes sense because of, you know, X, Y, and Z, or they, you know, did these you know, grants like ahead of, you know, this sort of change or like, it looks like the entire industry is clustering um, in terms of like making amendments to, to the governance, which might indicate there's some inflective behavior going on. Right. And, and I, I thought of it as kind of like just normal stuff, but I think, you know, when, when you're talking to other investors who don't spend time in there, they're, you know, they'd be like, excuse me, wait, what? Can you kind of take a few steps back? And that turns into a, oh, I need to like probably frame this in a way that's understandable to other folks versus like just a, oh yeah, that makes sense because I've seen it, you know, multiple times, right? Like, yeah, you rotate that in the committee and and of course that happens, but, you know, everyone goes, well, what do you mean? Of course. And then you, you kind of go through, um, these different elements. So, I mean, the reason I, I even launched the premium or even the newsletter was primarily I like the topic of governance in general. I think it's really interesting. But, um, you know, for me, my North Star was just like uh, evangelizing good governance. I know that sounds a little bit silly. It was less about making money and more about I just want to be kind of sharing, hey, here's how things uh, are, are happening in the marketplace. And I don't know, um, you know, if, if it's going to be like that. But I think talking about it and kind of shining a light on it tends to be an interesting disinfectant in the marketplace. And, oh, by the way, just to reinforce my point, um, you know, the best way to teach someone like bad behaviors and why it's bad is, is to highlight how people make money doing this stuff, which, I mean, it's a double-edged sword, right? You, sh- you show people how to make money doing this stuff. Maybe you're encouraging more bad behavior. But I think for me, net-net was, hey, the stuff is happening. Here's how people kind of you know, benefit from it. And just by showing it as a um, you know, phenomenon in real time, then it's like, yeah, it could be an investment strategy. I think we, at least I've certainly have benefited in my PA in the past, um, you know, identifying these situations and you know, deploying risk-adjusted bets on them. But um, you know, it's it's been an interesting sort of uh, journey as far as trying to you know share kind of how I look at you know the investment world. Yeah, I think that's such a weird and interesting tension there because you presented the dark arts as a way to teach people good governance. And yet in the end, you taught people how to identify situations where really bad governance could lead to interesting investment insights. And there's this like, you know, anti-Buffett kind of, you know, Buffett's like, look for aligned self-interest. And you're actually like, well, we could identify demonstrable pursuit of personal interest. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say, you know, that's true, but also like, this is a great way to um, assess, you know, you have a lot of investors who say they're kind of long-term focused and they want to align with, you know, operator ownership minded management teams. And yet how many people actually, you know, spend the time and effort to really like, deconstruct what that actually means, right? How do you actually assess, assess 
a good management team, an ownership-minded management team. I mean, you'll hear folks who are like, oh, you know, like they own 20% of the company. Okay, yeah, that's that that's true. Like that that can be a proxy for for ownership-minded management. Um, I I can also share instances where the you know a family owns 20% and it's actually quite awful <laughs> and it's, it's misaligned, right? So, you know, that was kind of, you know, one of the reasons I, I got into this stuff was like, well, if I'm saying I want to back really high quality ownership minded management teams, what are the indicators I should be looking for that, that gives me um, confidence that's the case, right? So yes, dark arts is a way to identify instances where bad leads to, you know, potentially, you know, tradable outcomes. But I, I'm a believer, and this is partly why I'm at the firm I'm at, is um, if, if you can understand stewardship and governance in a way that really identifies the highest quality you know, leaders and, and founders and operators, um, that's, that's going to be a, a situation where you're, you know, I, th- I, think, I, think, uh, I think that's a good process to have. But the other the other thing is why I like the dark arts and and this this kind of gets into you know everyone's investment journey. So like every every young person, new person that like kind of is getting into the space of investing, like I encourage them to do uh, this sort of corporate governance, event driven trading for for a few reasons. One, you know, a lot of people focus on like fat pitches and being patient and um, you know waiting for the right situation. And and that's fine. Like if you have a well fleshed out, you know, formed process, and you want to be patient, and you're looking for that one thing, and it works, awesome. But if if that you know fat pitch is a 70 mile per hour fastball, uh, you, you're probably not going to see that in the major leagues, right? May, maybe I learn how to hit a hanging curveball <laughs> or something else. Um, corporate governance trading is probably one one of the few areas where. It has really tight feedback loops and you can get a ton of at-bats, right? It's almost the anti-fat pitch approach to learning where it's like, or, you know, you're going to the batting cages. It's like, hey, here, here, here are the elements of how a spring load works, right? Where you grant before, you know, material information is released and the stock pops. Okay, well, let's start looking for instances where we think that might be a, a mechanism. Well, you're going to learn very quickly whether or not, um, you know, it was a spring load or not. If it's right, you might get a return. If it's wrong, you're going to learn, right? This is one of the few areas where you can actually be dead wrong about your assessment of a governance situation. And that failing or that that incorrect prediction is actually going to make you better. Um, you think about like most folks that invest in, and they're wrong about a name. It's the classic, like, I'm not wrong. Like the market regime changed, right? Valuations, interest rates, you know, macro, macro, macro. It's never your fault. Um, governance is one of the few places where it's like, when I'm right, I can actually like critique myself and be like, okay, that's why I'm right. And this is why I'm wrong within the context of actually being right. And then when I'm wrong, um, I could be um, within the context of, well, I, I think I was right here, but I was wrong here. And, and what you'll end up recognizing is, oh, wow, like you start really being able to differentiate like management decisions with fundamentals, with like you know, market volatility and regime change, right? They're like, you know, if, if you're making a bet that, you know, consolidation is about to happen or companies running a sales process, um, there are going to be instances where, you know, they announce a deal and it actually happens. And you're like, okay, you know, why did that work? And you can kind of deconstruct and do a postmortem and learn a lot. But if it doesn't work, 
um, you learn a lot about like, you know, how to think through, okay, investment appetite, um, you know, the market environment, pricing, who are the personalities that would want to hold out on a potential deal or pricing. It, it becomes a pretty like robust area to really just try to get better as an investor. So I always say like, whether you're, you're a novice or, or a professional, like doing governance-based sort of investing, even, even if it's on your Robinhood account, is, is a fun way just to like get at bats, get like a lot of, a lot of you know, iterations I'm doing. You don't have to like wait a few quarters or wait for you know, market share to shift. It's like literally, here's a bet. You're, you're going to know in a month or you're going to know in a quarter. And some of the longer duration ideas, you're going to know in a year. And and you're gonna pick up a ton of, um, you're gonna pick a ton, pick up a ton of skills and knowledge that you you didn't realize um, uh, you could pick up just by simply you know learning how to invest this way. And and for anyone who hasn't read it, the Dark Art series and all of your old stuff is still available online. I highly encourage people to go check it out. I reread a lot of it this morning, having read it originally a couple of years ago. And I think the way you put it was pretty much perfect, which was you compared it to some of these sort of inexplicable expert training situations where uh, a, a newcomer to whatever field it may be, as random as it may seem, just gets lots and lots of yes, no feedback. And then you even said, there's just a huge element to this of I know it when I see it. And I think that all falls into the same category of pattern recognition as it pertains to this stuff. So I, I don't know about you, but I think it has to be some combination of Reading, reading lots and lots of proxy statements and evaluating lots and lots of businesses and trying to connect the dots, right? Because I think you also made a post in there somewhere about having a checklist and then you joke, but I don't really use a checklist because it can't be the same for each individual situation, right? Which is you know, kind of how I approached even the broader task of investing right at the beginning. Like I started literally making a checklist and I realized it was kind of a false security because it's not going to cover everything by definition, right? And that's the challenge of trying to share like, the way you look at the world in a framework, right? Right. That's right. easily understood, right? I mean, you, you even think about like the the journey for like value investors, right? And, and value investing. It's like somehow we went from, you know, whatever the definition of value investing was decades ago to, you know, value investing is investing in low PE companies right. so without consideration right. of, you know, industry headwinds, issues, you know, what would potentially keep a, you know, valuation gap, you know, persistently you know, discounted or, you know, how you define intrinsic value. Um, it, 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 it can, there is real risk that you start turning a checklist into the checklist becomes your analysis, if you will, for a lot of folks, or they don't dig, you know, they don't actually dig in and, and think first principles about well, what is, you know, what is kind of the, the reasoning behind why you'd want to own a, I don't know, eight PE stock, right? Like the fund, you know, the actual fundamental reason um, versus like, oh, this is cheap at eight times, right? Like, we. Right. What's funny is, uh, we we've gone from at least when I started my career, you know, when someone said, "Oh, this is cheap at ten times," that was trailing PE, right? And then a few years later, it's like this is cheap ten times, and they were implying forward PE, and like today, it's like, oh, it's cheap at 10 times. They're talking forward revenue <laughs> multiples, right? <laughs> so it's like, apparently 10 is ten is the key indicator of cheapness, but it depends on, you know, at some point, it's probably going to be 10 times some sort of TAM multiple will be cheap. Well, actually, it probably was the case like, you know, a year ago. Probably right? was, yeah. 
right? So we're recording this in 2022, not 2021 here. <laughs> but you know that teaches you, you know, okay, that's uh, you have to. That was actually one thing I learned in activism. Um, when you're doing an analysis, no matter how you kind of derive your your version of cheapness, you have to convert it to a language or a framing that others um, can understand. So I might I might take do a certain valuation approach, but I also know if I'm talking to you know, stakeholders that are technology investors, I have to I have to convert that into revenue multiple, right? If I'm talking that if I'm talking to um, more value centric investors, I have to I have to frame my valuation in terms of you know a free cash flow multiple, right? As if like the valuation it is what it is, but I have to like reframe it to how they understand cheapness and and expensiveness, if that's even a word. Um, uh, just uh, you know, it's like it's like an investor's like API, right? Like your access code to their their analysis. You have to like speak in, in terms of their valuation multiple or framing, which is um, certainly one of the, one of the funner things you, you learn. It's like, oh, I guess the, you have to speak their language to a certain extent, but I'm meandering at this point. Yeah, no, to, to a degree, everything's relative, right? And the game's always changing, even in terms of the dark arts, right? I had never heard of the term spring-loaded grant before you, so I was going to ask you where you first heard of it. But also, like just this past November, the SEC picked up on that. I was like, oh, we don't like this. And I think you had called out the Kodak example in yeah. the blog a while ago, and that so, got some attention, interestingly, too. So I always like to say, like, if you know, how do you know you're you're doing well or you're well on your way in your investment journey? Um, I always say, I don't like, I don't, I've I've certainly examined and studied Buffett and Munger, but I'm probably in the bottom ten percent as far as really like getting into it and knowing every quote and every thing. And my whole my whole North Star was like, as I like get better or try to get better as an investor, am I discovering kind of similar thoughts or perspectives? that you know oh buffett actually like said this like 30 years ago in a quote it's like oh okay well um that's awesome but also like man you know like he maybe i should just study buff but then on the other hand it's like reading a quote and actually experiencing the quote are like two different things so to your point about um spring loading you know again it's very similar to like just us having conversation i'll just see a phenomenon i don't know what what word to use it i just I know that's something people do. And then I think I saw, you know, back in the options backdating scandal, um, you know, in the uh, what late 2000s, um, you know, a bunch of folks were highlighting, hey, options backdating is bad. But here, here are other kind of, you know, mechanisms to keep an eye out on, you know, spring loading, bullet dodging, things like that. And uh, people didn't really pay attention to that. Um, and then I think, uh, sometime later, you know, there's certainly academic studies around like the timing of grants and, and how they seem to ha- like generate, you know, uh, unusual returns, right. Atypical returns. So it was kind of like, okay, well, here's this phenomenon called spring loading. People have done a study on it that like, there seems to be some sort of pattern that, uh, you know, management teams or companies seem to have, you know, really good sense of timing for grants, um, Maybe there's something to it, right? And it turns out, at least in my anecdotal experience, that that, that was held true. Um, but no one talked about it. 
And so when you start talking about it and, and you just lay it out and suddenly, you know, people lose their mind, right? You talk about something like, I, you know, I wrote about Kodak. I tend to try to feature, um, you know, in, in my, I, it's an ongoing series, which I, I've paused for quite some time and I, maybe I'll write another dark arts piece soon. But you try to feature companies to reinforce like basic frameworks and ideas that seem to kind of come up over and over again. And, um, you know, spring loading was one of those things that just seemed to come up all the time that no one talked about. But um, I guess by talking about it, shining a light on it, it created more visibility. And it, you know, that's, that's, you know, that's kind of neat as far as like creating conversations around, okay, well, this is something that seems to be happening. And maybe we need to spend more time like investigating this as, as an area of, of concern, um, you know, for the marketplace. Now, should they be doing that versus some of the other things that, you know, are going on in the marketplace? You know, that's, uh, that's a separate conversation, I guess. But, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of neat that they even like, you know, it's on anyone's radar, to be honest. So I, I have two thoughts there. One is that I think you should, you've already done all the hard work here. I think you should compile this stuff into a book because I think it's worth memorializing. And I think it would have a, a really cool niche audience and, and we could talk further about that, but I, I think that's a, fantastic idea second would be speaking of people paying attention and putting it on their radar screen what do you think the regulators should be paying attention to or if you were the benevolent dictator of the u.s's capital markets or the world's capital markets or whatever what would you change i'm particularly wondering if you would make some tweaks to the listing requirements from the various exchanges as far as corporate governance goes um you know it's hard to say I, you know, uh, I, I don't know. Um, you get into kind of policymaking and all that. You know, the questions are like, what rules, what rules, what rules you want to put in? And, and, you know, my knee jerk reaction, like, I don't know about new rules, but like enforcing existing rules might be a start. Right? <laughs> that would be a good uh, start. In a lot of there's cases, a, yeah. there's one thing. Okay. So oh, this is, this is actually, all right, we're flowing now, boys. Um, this is one thing you learn about corporate governance and, and like, you know, shenanigans and dark arts, whatever you want to call it. Right. Like it's not oftentimes rules aren't being enforced. That's all it is. Like the rules are actually there and you're not supposed to do certain things and they just do it. They, they just do it. And, and that's the, that's the, that's the unique thing about corporate governance is this, you have directors, you have CEOs these are kind of the you know top of the organization sort of individuals, very you know, high reputations, highly accomplished, highly connected individuals doing these things. They know right and wrong. They know the rules, and yet it happens. So why does it happen? Well, I mean, there's there's probably a long litany of reasons why it happens. But I can say this: there is a typically a comfort that nothing's going to happen. Not no, you know. Things just go away. Nothing gets enforced. It just, you know, cases get dropped. You know, this is maybe I'm putting on my conspiracy theory hat, but there is this fundamental, you know, you could, you could work, you could be a line worker at a public company and, you know, you missed a shift or, or you, you shortchanged by a buck and you might get fired, right? As, as an hourly worker. If you're a member of the director, you know, board of directors, and, and, you know, there's some really aggressive things going on um, that might lead to billions of dollars of value destruction. Well, what are the consequences of that? You know, yeah. like you actually, 
there's probably more consequences to you missing a credit card payment than some of the decisions that these directors let through, right? And it's 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 actually kind of funny, right? It's like how come there isn't a FICO score for like just bad director decisions? Free idea out well, there. Yeah, that is a free idea. Yeah, I think until it gets to the level of really embarrassing the directors personally, which is a almost egregiously high bar in most cases or criminal liability. Well, yeah, this, this, gets, of, right? this gets into that element of like, do you embarrass director? Like, actually, I believe most directors want to do the right thing. Um, the power, uh, the power law of them do. But when you like study some of these, you know, situations that turn out pretty sour, oftentimes it's because right. of one or two, you know, key broke power brokers on the board that kind of like, you know, dominate. And sometimes it's like everyone knows what the right thing to do is. They just don't do it for a lot of reputational professional networking network reasons. Um, and they also understand, well, I don't necessarily need to speak up because there's no consequences to me if I do. And actually, this, you know, governance and being a director is one of the few places where it's it's funny because like, you know, I, I believe if you study like the Kodak spring loading stuff, um, I think they asked the director, like, do you know what spring loading is or something like that? I, you know, I, well, let me just generalize it. So I'm not going to use Kodak, but like governance is one of the few places where you're actually incentivized not to properly educate directors on, on how to like make decisions. Cause then like, at least you have kind of that like prudent, you know, investor, like you're, you're, you're doing the best you can with the information presented to you. And if they don't tell you the thing that you need to know to make like this proper decision, then there's some level of defensibility to it. I'm probably getting in trouble with like someone that's like, nah, that's not how it works. But um, basically ignorance is bliss at the boardroom in some weird way, right? Like the less, you know, the less, you know, you're going to be exposed as far as like, well, don't you know, you're not supposed to do that. It's like, actually I didn't. If I did, I would have done it this way versus, oh yeah, I did know. And then, you know, I violated my fiduciary duty by. Yeah. My, my working theory on that is exactly what you just said. Maybe put slightly differently is almost every director wakes up in the morning with no ill intent, no nefarious intentions whatsoever. But at the same time, the prevailing ethos is a hundred percent. Don't rock the boat. Don't get in trouble. Don't piss off the CEO. Don't draw any unwarranted attention stay in the good graces, keep going to the meetings, get all the perks, get the, you know, the cash and equity comp, build the resume, keep on rolling. And to me, that's led to this incredible uh, kind of reverse inverse barbell where on the one far extreme, you have amazingly competent boards full of great people that are all clearly aligned, acting in the shareholders' best interest. At the other end, you have the tiny sliver of boards that have outright crooks on them or have people that are doing things that are intentionally bad. And in between, you just have this giant lump of mediocrity where it's suboptimal, but it's not so horrible that anything changes. Would you agree? I'm going to be diplomatic here and say, you know, there, <laughs> there, there are pros and cons to collegiality and the collegial culture within uh, sure. uh, board, boardrooms. I, I do think um, we need to do a better job as investors and, and just kind of as a industry as a whole, like celebrating and highlighting like well-functioning boards and, and outstanding boards and how to do things a certain way. Um, I, it, it's just, you know, it's always funny because like, you know, Buffett always will have similar perspectives that you've shared and, and gripes and, and frustrations. And um, 
you know, that's, it is probably going to be an evergreen issue uh, and, and how to reconcile that, understand that, I guess, is part of the dark arts, right? Like it's not, you know, sometimes it's yep. not about, you know, trying to make changes. It's just accepting, you know, the facts on the ground, right? Like, so the way I think like, this is maybe the only value add portion of, of, of my talking on this podcast, the way to think about corporate governance is this, as an investor, you know, a compensation structure, um, governance decisions in general, is like, you know, I'm going to use a sports analogy, but it's like you have the playbook and almost the game plan that a team's going to run in a game, right? Like this is kind of how they're going to operate. This is how they're going to ex- uh, they're going to try to like, you know, win the game, if you will, right? Um, some game plans are just so like out there. We're like, what is going on here, right? But it's like if if they execute this, you know, they're basically selling, you know, say, effectively saying our game plan is to sell the company, right? So governance is really like almost taking the other team's playbook and game plan and like giving, and then that helps you kind of inform whatever you bet you want to make on the game, right? Like mm-hmm. points, like, and just imagine point spreads don't reflect that you actually have access to the, you know, both teams' playbooks and, and whatever, right? Uh, where, where things get interesting, where you actually learn and get better as investors, like you might have a team's playbook and game plan for that particular game but everyone knows when the game's played on the field stuff changes right weather comes in you know people get injured you have to make audibles you have to make halftime adjustments and like your initial assessment of of what might play out um might not play out that way right even if you're right you know even if it's like you know alabama playing some you know like obscure team you're like i don't care what elements there are uh, or or injuries, Alabama is going to steamroll this team, you know, for by five touchdowns, guaranteed. I don't care, right? But um, there might be instances where you know stuff does happen, and then you know they might lose. But you know, it's not against a, a low level competitor. It might be against like a Georgia or or someone else. And so, like, you know, for me, when you think about governance, it's really like, why wouldn't you want to know what a company is really trying to do? And also what they're trying to do to like kind of finagle, you know, advantages for themselves uh, to help inform your investment thinking, because it's like, okay, you're watching, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to be making bets on this game anyway, like at least have a sense of what, what they're doing. And you're going to learn a ton either way, whether, you know, you hopefully, you know, your, your prediction turns out right. Or, or if it turns out wrong, now you can actually properly contextualize and do a postmortem on, on what happened. Well, let's talk more value add too, because I think you've added a lot of value along the way. And one of the areas that we first connected over, I don't know if you remember exactly when, but it was like, I've told listeners of the podcast a lot of times about my affinity for the post-hype sleeper, which is an IPO that comes to market with a considerable amount of hype and basically belly flops. And, you know, I'd always thought of it from the lens of um, the market's hype cycle, but you introduced me to the idea that there's a distinct governance angle to it as well. That when a company goes public, they don't necessarily have the maturity of how to govern themselves for public markets and have to make distinct changes that are part of the maturation cycle. So maybe talk about that a little bit. We did a Periscope back when that was a thing about Dropbox, which was a whole lot of fun. And back had some when it really was a interesting- thing. Yeah, <laughs> that was a thing for a little bit. I mean, you know, going public, 
going public is akin to like you're you're preparing for an event, right? Athletic event or whatever event, right? You're training, you're trying to get into shape. But when you're actually like in public markets, no different than like being in game shape versus just being in shape are much different things, right? Like they're just much different things. And and frankly, no matter how much time you spend in pu- uh, private markets, there's certain things you just have to be a public company to like really build those muscles, right? And when you think of it that way, um, it it shouldn't come as a surprise that there's going to be kind of an acclimation process uh, that all companies have to go through. And you also have to think of it in terms of like incentives, right? Like most companies are going public are not incentivized to like share some differentiated like, you know, uh, playbook or investor communication plans or, you know, um, you know, operating metrics. Like w- how do things operate? It's like, you know, the S1 teardown 101. Here's, here's your recurring revenue. Here's your growth, net dollar retention, churn, LTV calculations, blah, blah, blah. Everyone uses the same metrics because they're trying to just like, um, they're optimizing for evaluation for an exit, right? But eventually, like, you have to start communicating your own kind of, you know, North Star and, and operating metrics and, and uh, you know, do the things you actually operate your company against, right? Like, I, you know, we, everyone talks about rule of 40 and all these other, like, you know, uh, rule of thumbs. And it's like, do you think a board is walking in and, you know, going like, well, what's the rule of 40 of, of this, you know, operating plan? Well, I get maybe, maybe they might not. I mean, that you might want to replace that director if they talk like that. But um, eventually you have to start like aligning your communication with how you operate the company. And, and there's kind of a growing pain that often comes with that. I know we talked about Dropbox in the past. And, and what's really funny about Dropbox, and I actually would throw in like WWE, um, to a certain extent about this, you know, here are companies that, you know, in 21, um, actually, you know, when you think about like a year ago, right. And, and what kind of drove returns and valuations, it certainly wasn't being cash flow centric and it certainly wasn't being, you know, being like, you know, capital allocation disciplined. And, um, it's just funny to see, you know, today, like, there's kind of this consensus of like, you know, especially in SaaS and tech, you know, you have to learn how to like be self-sufficient. You have to learn how to, you know, like self-fund and be capital disciplined and generate cash flows and profitability. And yes, those are, those are all very valid uh, points, but like, I think a lot of folks um, underappreciate just the cultural elements required to like change course from go to growth to, you know, some level of, you know, cash flow profitability. You're talking about folks that built entire careers and businesses on not thinking like that necessarily. So the chain, being able to change from one style to the other is actually quite extraordinary. And which is probably what drew me to Dropbox in a lot of ways. Cause you know, Dropbox and, and kind of, you know, was one of the OG kind of darlings for a long time, right? Had had kind of the uh, uh, this growth trajectory and, and excitement, and um, you know, when when they went into public markets, and um, you know, certainly like changed their approach to capital allocation and being more cash flow margin centric, and obviously the story is still ongoing. I, you know, I I thought that gesture that that switch. Um, ha- you know, occurring so soon after going public was like I, I think most people underappreciate just how how I don't know brave is the right word, but just like how impressive like 
that change is. You know, that takes a lot of like decisiveness and conviction and, and understanding that like I need to run the business for, you know, kind of like I gotta I gotta play the game on the field, so to speak. And like this is this is the game and 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 I'm willing to make that commitment and 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 uh you know focus on building my organization that way. And and that was um I mean that's that's one thing that really impressed me with Drew Houston, right? Like you know, the, that willingness to see that um, this is kind of how things are unfolding and how I should kind of think of if, if I'm really trying to build this for the long term, this is how I need to operate my organization. I, I don't, I, 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 I will never underappreciate that. I will always, I will always appreciate um, um, that sort of thinking, that sort of, uh, you know, um, uh, thoughtfulness. And, and so when you think about all these companies that are kind of, you know, so to speak, busting right now, uh, you know, the busted IPO or just, <laughs> yeah, I call it busted IPOs, but really it's just busted market right now, right? Like we're all in a busted market. So what do we, everyone now is going to first principles. Everyone now is thinking, well, gee, like how do we like, you know, manage this dynamic of, you know, our entire, you know, uh, employee base doesn't understand a market where the stock doesn't always go up you know, keeping them online incentivized and, and also um, retaining key talent and, but also rationalizing headcount in the process and managing the cultural, you know, cultural dynamics of, of all this change. And um, are we actually just trying to make like a real change or is this really a temporary change with the hope that the market recovers and we can, you know, business as usual, or do we need to um, actually, you know, make significant, you know, adjustments and, you know, that journey, um, happens over and over again, right? And and along the way, hopefully you you're able to kind of find your own voice as as a public company. But um, you know, I think that's you know when we talk about Dropbox or some of these other kind of companies that have gone through it, like I can't really, you know, like how many companies have you have you know? It's let me rephrase that. You know, a lot of folks are talking about moving from growth to cash flow centric kind of mindset given this market environment. Um, but how many companies have actually done that in a thoughtful, sensible way where they're really focused on long-term value creation? I can't think of many that have attempted that, you know, transition or, or, or that, you know, um, and, and maybe I'm, you know, but like, I don't think there are that many recent examples of, of Dropbox type kind of like transitions or, or, uh, um, I don't, I don't know if pivot's the right word, but evolution, right, as a public company. And so it'll be interesting to see who, who can actually do it because I think what often happens is you, you go for growth and it doesn't work out and the stock tanks and instead of trying to fix it, you sell to uh, you know, Uncle Orlando, uh, Tom and Bravo, you know. Um, Uncle Orlando predates any 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 LBO is uh, a new IPO as we tweeted <laughs> right. last week, right? But like you know, it's like and it's because it's hard work, it's stressful work. Like uh, and it it is appealing to just kind of exit and let you know the private equity guys be the bad cop on on uh, you know certain things. Um, but you know, I don't know if Tom Bravo can acquire all the SaaS tech companies out there. Although I I think there's certain tech investors that hope they can. Um, But, you know, a lot of companies are going to have to figure out how to, you know, operate um, in a, in a kind of cash flow centric way um, as a public entity, but, you know, we'll see. 
Well, there are two kinds of it too, right? Like I've always loved the modest proposal tweet about Amazon, how every once in a while they'd show a little leg in terms of their ability to generate profitability. That, you know, there's this narrative out there that Amazon's always, you know, pedal to the metal invested for growth. But the fact is at certain points along the way, they demonstrated their ability to generate cash and then went back to investment mode, which built credibility with their investor base and earned them the right to keep doing that time and again. Alternatively, you have a company like Dropbox who's like, yeah, you know, we're actually just going to focus on, you know, generating cash flow while executing a more prudent capital allocation strategy and um, is still investing to a degree for growth, but but we're okay with, with modest growth. And, you know, like, how do you think about those two camps of companies and any signs you'd look for of companies like pursuing some degree of rationalization right now? I think the best way, and I love, I love the modest kind of framing of that. Um, I don't think it's really different in my head. The way I think of it is you're trying to build trust with the shareholder base. And, and when I say trust, I mean the shareholders then trust that what you're doing is thoughtful. It's intentional. And the reason when you can like be like an Amazon and obviously focus on trying to, you know, your margins, my opportunity, but then occasionally like kind of show, show that you can do margins yourself. That's indicating what you're doing, your, your playbook, your strategy is very intentional, right? You've thought it through, you know, you know how to pull the levers back and forth, right? The, the, the challenge for a lot of places is, you know, they're running, you know, they're running hard charging playbooks. And they haven't demonstrated that they can actually pull levers, that they can actually be intentional about, you know, their reasoning for, for expanding headcount versus something else. So, you know, you talk about you know, even a year ago or, you know, 18 months, you know, the go for growth sort of like mindset oftentimes came with um, just go for growth headcount um, growth, right? Like hiring, hiring, CapEx, CapEx, um, OpEx, OpEx all this spend and what ends up happening is like how in like what's the intentionality of of that like growth spend right are you just like is this one of those like this is our budget and we just need to hire bodies against that budget or are you actually really thinking through this is why we need these people and this is how we can you know potentially generate you know exceptional long-term value by doing this right because i i would say that for most who are really aggressive with their hiring. It's more in that, like, you know, it's human nature. You're just kind of going against uh, whatever budget you get, or, you know, you're just, again, you're, you're being, you're, you're following rule of thumbs instead of being intentional about it. But if you can, you know, you can burn capital, but if, if, if you show that you're very intentional about it and you're able to kind of generate return and also are thoughtful for about like how to, you know, rein it in uh, when necessary, that's a pretty powerful, you know, signal the number of organizations capable of doing that isn't like in my in my opinion like there are not that many that can do it that way right that actually have a thoughtful you know operator owner mindset that's aligned with the board of directors that have kind of a good view of their north star that can kind of you know take all these different like you know factors into play and 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 adjust course and be adaptable when needed right um and WCM talks a lot about flexibility and adaptability in your culture as being a key contributor of competitive advantage. And, it, and you know, one way of demonstrating flexibility and adaptability is the organization's able to, you know, adjust and flex their cost base 
to not only you know go after long term opportunities, but recognize that sometimes you know the the existing environment warrants um, you know some changes, right? Like I guarantee you, right now you're looking at companies, and there's some companies that are going to like you know do reduction in force, headcount reductions, and you know they think okay, we're we're going to move towards cash flow um, or, or margin, you know, uh, leverage, and you'll look at it and you'll be. Like or at least for me, I'll look at it and be like, okay, that it just seems like they're doing that because that's what you're supposed to do versus being intentional about it, right? There are a lot of operators and boards right now thinking through. We got to make cuts. Yeah. How many of the, how many of them are genuinely saying that in the sense like we need to be thoughtful about like how our business is operating in this environment, which may warrant you know X, Y, and Z you know headcount considerations versus like the markets you know uh, gone gone to. You know, gone sideways and and you know the valuations are are, are terrible we just need a cut gonna, there's a lot of people that just their mandate is we get the sense we have to cut you know they hear cash flow cut and it's like that's actually that doesn't build much confidence for me in that in that yeah. company versus like hey here's why this you know we actually might even like hold off maybe we you know maybe the contrarian thing to do might be to start playing offense and start hiring right now Right, for sure. Like I actually might, <laughs> I might be intrigued by the company that's lowering their margin because they're hiring people because they think the opportunity is like compelling in this environment, versus you know the, the folks cutting. The how and the why matters a ton, right? I totally agree. If they're just doing it because everybody's doing it, and I think there's been a lot of that in the last few years, you know, just kind of a, a herd mentality around what people wanted to see. I think that can be pretty destructive. But uh, circling back to your north side, you mentioned about wanting to highlight the good in corporate governance or the good practitioners out there. I've got a couple of examples in mind, but I'm curious if you wanted to share any uh, particularly good actors, because I agree. I think and circling back to my prior question too, I don't think it's easy to just, you know, mandate change from the top down. So if you were the benevolent dictator, I'm not sure what positive impact you could make overnight. So I think highlighting the good and shining a light on the bad is probably the best strategy. So. I commend you for that. I was just curious if you had any examples that you thought were you're able or were willing to share. I'm probably going to share more on that, like through the artist studio. Part of my mandate is actually like doing more content, and uh, you know, most people think we're we're doing you know this research to help. Them. Well, we are uh, WCM, but also uh, we're probably going to open source some of our kind of learnings too. Uh, probably a lot of it, to be honest, um, over time. Um, it's always hard to like, you know, it's kind of like the dark arts frameworks. Like, you know, what's the framework for, for a great board? You know, what are you, what are you looking for? And like, uh, sometimes uh, like I tried, I've, I've actually attempted this multiple times. Um, like when, when I try to build a framework for what a well-functioning, like a high quality board should look like. And then, you know, immediately I'll, I'll find an example where it violates every rule that I think is important and actually like I wouldn't want to change that board. That's a high quality board, right? Like, I mean, I think the most quintessential example of kind of the uh, the um, uh, the conflicting nature of assessing like high quality boards would be like you know, Berkshire Hathaway's board, right? Like, there's certain there's certain dynamics elements there where I'm just like, you know, in any other instances, I would not you know find this very appealing. But given kind of the unique culture and and history of of you know Berkshire. Um, it works and it's exceptional. Now, would I use that as a model of of what to do? Absolutely not. 
But um, I think that's where you got to be careful as far as trying to apply like a framing necessarily of what's good and bad because and I, this goes back to you know an earlier point in, in the conversation. Like sometimes you just know when you see it, right? It's maybe just like at bats. That being said, if I were to say, I will say this, one of the more remarkable governance board situations um, uh, I've studied recently is uh, UPS of all things. Um, and, and, and just kind of stewardship under Carol Tomei. And if you were to actually study the board composition, and you know, the board's not bad, right? Like they've done a lot of the right things. Like what's actually remarkable about the UPS journey when you think about it is when you study like how they were paying the management team, you know, the metrics that they were prioritizing, the the board and kind of like the backgrounds, like it all looked very solid, right? It all seemed to like indicate here are the things that you would want to do to encourage like thoughtful capital allocation. Um, X, Y, and Z, right? And yet, with all that in place, you bring in Carol. Obviously, there, you know, COVID. She came in when like it's in the middle of COVID, but she was able to do so many remarkable changes organizationally. But more interestingly, she's also introduced some pretty interesting, um, you know, boardroom refreshment succession. They've actually introduced a lot of new directors. And when you study it, kind of like their backgrounds and, and the needs of UPS going forward, it was I was like, man, that was a very remarkable. Um, thing she did in the sense of like there was a lot of transition at the board level which is always kind of a you know um, a sensitive thing for any public company and yet uh, they seem to do a pretty good job you know finding folks from diverse backgrounds and and experiences that you know they needed um, perspective on and it's um, you know really quite impressive uh, you know today you know it's, it's hard to make an assessment or judgment on the quality of the board like in, in a near-term sense but it's it, it, it is kind of the um i love studying it because like you can almost see a lot of the decades of experience that carol and the, uh, other directors on that board have had you can almost see like it's it's almost kind of the uh you can see the decades of experience and perspective starting to get you know uh, reflected in in these decisions, for for lack of better uh, uh, description. So, like that's one where like you can you know, study that a lot. But this goes back to um, you be you be surprised how quickly a bad board can turn into an exceptional board just because like one person joins or one person leaves. That's I think I that's kind that. of the, the biggest factor. So, like when you think about like what you're looking for X, Y, and Z, it's like. Um, it, a lot can change with one person. I will say the one thing that you should probably pay attention to as far as quality of, of the board is just like comp committee. Like who's the chair? Is it pretty stale? Is it, does it seem pretty cozy? Is it small? Um, you can you can learn a lot about board dynamics simply by just studying their comp committee and the metrics they're using over time. Um, that, that seems to be kind of a reliable place where at least from a framework perspective, you can, you know, identify flags and, and opportunities yeah, pretty I don't know if consistently is the right phrasing but you know I'm, I'm much more comfortable like discussing how to think about comp committees versus like like a great board as a whole 
that was one of the things I really appreciated from your checklist. You know, I know we said checklists aren't exactly perfect, but you're like, you don't have to read every word. It's like, go to these specific areas and start thinking about them and internalizing what they're saying and repeat that and do it over and again and start looking for patterns. And so comp committees, right? What are some of the things you really, really want to see? Uh, you know, if uh, and I tell this to everyone that wants to get better at this stuff, like if if you could just do one thing, just study the equity, right? How do you, how are they paying? You know, when when your compensation is is like not you know ninety percent of the value, ninety five percent of the value is tied to equity. Like, well, we'll study the equity compensation structure of these companies, right? We'll study how they get granted, when, why. Um, how they incentivize the mix of options versus RSUs versus, you know, uh, now performance-based shares. Um, understand kind of the best practices for how you're supposed to do these grants, and and you'll learn a lot about um, uh, how organizations operate, right? Because there tends to be a pretty standardized way of of paying executives, and so when a company diverges from that, uh, that's telling you a story, right? That's telling you there's something here that compels this organization to do something much different than they should be, right? So an example, I think, I don't know if I've shared this publicly, but like Twitter. When Twitter, you know, granted their equity this year, it was like all RSUs, time-based RSUs. And anyone that understands kind of like best practices, you're going to get, you're going to get skewered by like Glass Lewis and all the proxy advisors by like giving out equity that's simply, you know, time-based RSUs versus like some, you know, more I guess best practice conventional mix of you know at risk I guess equity or whatever they call it. Um, so when when you're giving the entire management team just RSUs, that's telling you a story. That's telling you there's something that's worth exploring. And actually, when you piece everything together, it really just kind of highlighted and reinforced. You know, I don't know if anyone remembers when Elon basically said like I want to buy this company. And who knows if he'll actually buy it. No one believed it, right? The stock like popped and then it eventually traded off. But then they gave Twitter insiders RSUs. I'm just like, okay, it doesn't feel believable either from my perspective with Elon, but they're basically saying that this is, they're seriously considering something, right? Because no one is going to just grant all their insiders um, uh, time-based RSUs Unless um, you know they're potentially like considering a transaction, and and let me let me unpack that a bit so people understand. Um, if you're an insider, if you're a management team, and let's say you actually are considering selling the company, getting RSUs is probably the cleanest way of monetizing that decision. And the reason is, well, you can get options, but if the premium isn't that compelling, let's say you're only going to get like a you know whatever 15 percent premium or twenty percent premium. Um, your, I guess, your economic windfall from that by simply taking on options isn't like that compelling relative to RSUs. You know, you, you have to do the math and like, you know, I, but I'm pretty sure that's the case. If you do PSUs, you have this overhang of having to meet certain operational or fundamental performance criteria that can kind of like muddy like how you get paid out in a change of control transaction. So oftentimes the cleanest way to manage this is just giving, um, insiders RSUs. And so when you see this dynamic of getting RSUs in lieu of like a typical traditional mix of equity compensation, that that often can be like a indicator that, oh, there's there might be something going on here because um, most 
boards are resistant to doing such packages because A, most people say it's not at risk, right? Like the stock goes down, management still gets paid. And B, there's there's enough of an ESG proxy advisory compensation um, industrial complex that would discourage that and actually like you know, shareholders will vote against that sort of plan. And directors don't like getting voted against on anything usually. So um, for them to kind of do that knowing that hey, a year from now, it's going to look pretty bad when it's in the proxy. It's telling. It's telling you a lot. So it's certainly, you know, so when you're looking at the proxy or you're trying to get better at this stuff, just like study the equity compensation section. It's the highest return on time you'll probably get. And and more importantly, it should get you excited and and, and enthusiastic about learning about all the other elements of uh you know corporate governance and how it can like create value as an investor and as all you listeners know i uh was quite involved with the twitter thing so when i saw those grants i was like hey mike what do you think um but maybe you know something that you said earlier on um when you have a 20 percent owner operator it could be a good or a bad thing one of the questions I'd really love to hear you address is like, you know, what are some of the clearest signals that it's decisively a good thing? Because I think a lot of our listeners are out here, the kind of investors who are looking to try to find really good long-term companies that they can hang on to, a lot of people who appreciate owner-operators, yada, yada. Um, but what, what do you think are some of the most important telltale signs that, yeah, this is really a, a situation where I have an aligned interest? Oh, man, that's... a uh... That's an easy but also hard question, and and, and I'll I like this. those. Um, I you know, in 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 a past life, I actually trained um, a lot of these. Uh, I, I actually trained a lot, trained a lot of the big asset managers on how to think about corporate governance, and and you know th- this specific question um, often came up: how do you how do you ensure that this you know, this is a owner ownership focused um, you know, team that you want to like, you know, get behind. And my answer was always like, you know, I don't know if there's a great framework. It kind of, it depends, but I will say this for the really, like for the best management teams and the best operators, sometimes corporate governance doesn't matter. And, and, and what I mean is this, like, they're so good they don't need guardrails. They're so good. It doesn't matter what the equity mix is. They just do the right thing. And it's remarkable that they do the right thing because most, most mortals don't like, can't, they don't have that discipline yet. They're so good. Like, it's just like, it's part of the culture. Right. So this, I mean, it's a much more qualitative question than, than like checklist quantitative question, as far as like, is this, is this a place that culturally, um, values and reinforces and 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 kind of drives behaviors that are ownership minded. Um, where I mean, I've seen plenty of family owned you know situations where governance just looks terrible in in the sense that like you know the equity comp is kind of like wonky. It's not like dark arts, but it's just like it clearly looks like you know this was put together by you know one or two people and just to, like just to get it done with. Right. But what they do a good job of is like, oh, they're, you know, maybe they, maybe they only occasionally grant equity to insiders, but it's, um, 
uh, they're thoughtful about it, right? They're not being opportunistic. Like the best, actually, here I'll, I'll give some actionable advice, uh, insight or advice here. Take all the companies where you think they do well, that you think are doing a good job as far as like leadership operator uh, centric sort of decision making. Study what they did the last two years. Study how what what were their capital allocation and compensation and all of the other governance decisions that were made from COVID on? Did they, you know, what sort of adjustments or amendments on the fly did they have to do because you know facilities are shut down, right? That that's rubber meets road right there, right? That's that is at its most quintessential, like how are they demonstrating their flexibility, adaptability, but in a way where they're still trying to you know, treat shareholders fairly because COVID COVID is going to be one of those eras where I could probably look at any company and then just immediately flip through kind of the like, you know, 2020 era governance decisions. And that's going to actually help inform how I think about this organization going forward. Right. Like when, when the cards were down, like how did you make adjustments? Right. I'm okay with adjustments. It happens. You need to do it. Like it was a it was a pandemic, right? Like no one plans that. But just because no one plans it, were you still fair to shareholders, or were you opportunistic? Did you like back up the dump truck with, uh, you know, with grants or something else? Because there were, I, I mean, literally there were. I'm going to leave this company unnamed, but there there are companies that you know classic reopening type play that, um, you know, when things start stabilizing. And I don't know if you remember November 2020, massive pop in the market, right? Massive pop. And, you know, when you studied this, this kind of reopening, like the market was kind of shut down, existential crisis dynamic um, effort of this particular company, they lo and behold, like the Sunday before the stock, because the stock market popped like on a Monday or something like that, or Monday or Tuesday. And anyone knows like Form 4 filing disclosures, it, it usually, I think you file them like a couple of days after you grant them. But like for some reason, and this is very actually unusual. They like granted a ton of equity on a Sunday, um, like a few days before the stock market popped. And I'm just like, any goodwill, any whatever you want to say, um, uh, you thought like, hey, you know, it's the classic Buffett thing, right? Like, it, it doesn't take much to ruin a reputation, you know, a reputation that's built over years and decades. Um, so, I would say if you're really trying to figure out, hey, I want to look for high quality, you know, companies with high quality ownership and management team and and, and a highly engaged, you know, organization that treats shareholders well. Well, study study the periods where they had an opportunity to not treat you well, to actually capitalize and, and self-enrich. Because I'll tell you, there, and, and this drives me like batty going through proxy season and, and voting for proxies. Um, you know, Glass Lewis will recommend um, a vote against you know, executive compensation on these companies. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, this is like actually a well-run, thoughtful you know, organization, thoughtful board. They did not take advantage of folks during 2020 and they actually waited until, you know, the following year to create kind of more sensible compensation package. And like last would be like, no, this is egregious, excessive based on our whatever burn calculation framework. And it's like, they could, they could have 
probably taken 2x or more of value if they just granted in 2020 when they were entitled to, and yet they waited, right? So, yeah. I mean, the bet, you you know, you know, the kind of people you want to work with when, when the cards are down, right? When things are tough, when there's an opportunity to take advantage of a situation or not, right? Like when, when you're vulnerable. So, study, study the governance during those periods and you'll see, like, wow, you know, some companies, no matter how much you like them, just can't help themselves. They really are opportunistic. They really are going to like take care of themselves. And it's like, if that's the case, at least you know that they're only going to do it when they feel like, you know, the, 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 the card is stacked in their favor. So you can trade along that. But as a long-term, like, you know, a holder, that is a real risk factor that you're going to have to, you know, deal with uh, longer term. But um, that's my long-winded explanation. Hopefully that was valuable. But like the best way is forget the framework. Sometimes it's just go study past behaviors. And it's like, if they were pretty good in 2020 when the world was on fire and everyone had opportunities to like enrich themselves, they're probably going to treat you well in a, you know, less chaotic market environment. Well, I think that's an incredibly powerful lesson and really valuable for everyone who's listening. I think it's a good note to kind of wrap up on now. And we've covered a lot of ground. And I think it's really helpful that we, uh, in the end, right there, I'm like sitting here thinking exactly which companies I'm going to go back over and kind of like make sure I pay a little closer attention. And I just want to paint a picture here because we're using Zoom, we're seeing each other. Mike's got this beautiful artist studio behind him as as the Zoom background. And it's like, it's just absolutely perfect to hear that. Uh, I, I could see the visual of uh, you flipping through proxies with uh, the studio going on around you. <laughs> it's uh, aspirational, but, um, you know, if, if you love talking governance and, and research, obviously feel free to slide in the old DMs. My DMs are open on, on Twitter, but, um, you know... Uh, that's the kind of stuff I care about. And obviously that's you know part of the, you know, uh, wing of the research organization that we, we want to level up on. So, you know, like I said, my, my, I, I love my job and part of it is meet, meeting interesting people. And um, if you find this stuff appealing, like, you know, reach out. And if you have good scenarios, run them by Mike, right? Because it helps everyone involved. <laughs> it made my job so easy back, back in the newsletter days. I, I probably generated a reasonably, decent return just from people flagging situations that they already did the fundamental work and it was really just trying to you know all right it's it's is the governance driving with their thesis and it was like wow it's this is like um a wonderful way of, of finding interesting ideas so and running by me too while you're at it <laughs> <laughs> definitely all right. Thank you so much for joining us. This was awesome. I feel like we could keep going, but uh, let's let's save for a second round sometime in the not too distant future. Really appreciate yeah, it. Thanks, Mike. That, that was awesome. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.